Hello, and welcome to Eyes on Success, a weekly program of information on the ever-changing world of accessibility. Now here are the hosts of this program, Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy. Hello, I'm Nancy. And I'm Pete. This week we'll be talking about how people can understand astronomical data. You know, it turns out that signals received from astronomical observatories and telescopes are sometimes outside the range of human perception, even for sighted people. We'll speak with Kim Arcand, who has created tactile representations of many parts of the universe based on data from a variety of sources, including the Chandra X-ray Observatory, where she works. But first for our tip of the week. This week's tip is that if you can't see the typical representations of astronomical information, there are other ways that you can appreciate the data. Tactile representations are not only useful in terms of learning about the information that you're trying to represent, but it also can be a real motivator for young people to get a first idea, if they're not sighted, about what some of these physical objects and events are all about. Absolutely. I am inspired by our universe on a daily basis, and I am strongly driven to share that inspiration with other people. And making our data as accessible as possible is kind of a starting point as a way for us to do that. And I think there's kind of like this inspiration pipeline. You know, you start with a spark and then see where it leads. I'll say the universe is a pretty fascinating place. (laughs) There's a lot to learn and I get to learn something new every day. So part of the joy in my job is helping others do that as well. Support for Eyes on Success is provided by... Way Around, revolutionizing how people with vision loss keep track of important information about everyday things with the tap of a smartphone. The simple tag and scan system promotes independence in everyday situations. Learn more at www.wayaround.com. Let's start by meeting Kim. My name is Kim Arcans, and I work for NASA's Chandra X-ray Observatory. I'm stationed at the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory up in Cambridge, Massachusetts. My work as visualization lead for the Chandra X-ray Observatory is all about telling stories with data um, and telling those stories in the most accurate and scientific ways that we can, but also paying attention to the aesthetic um, and meaning-making portions of, of that as well. When you say telling stories with data, is this for purposes of communicating to the professional astronomers or the general public or what? So I would say that The work we do is meant for the expert to non-expert spectrum. I primarily concentrate on non-expert audiences, but for sure, having the subject matter expert, um, both as part of the audience and also as part of the conversation, um, for us is very important. So it's not that it's meant to be a one-size it's all type of situation, but when we are making our data visualizations for various audiences, we take into consideration who exactly it is that we're trying to communicate with. 
whether that's an astrophysicist or whether that's a student in school. You are listening to Eyes on Success. Success, 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 success. This week's focus topic is about how astronomical phenomena can be communicated in tactile ways. So maybe you can give us a quick overview of the types of specific visualizations that you've worked on that you try to use for communication purposes. Sure. So we started out primarily working on two-dimensional images that we create, uh, visual representations of the objects that NASA's Chandra Observatory gets to observe. And after the mission had sort of built over time, we started working on things like time lapses, so watching data change over time. And that type of representation, I think, is quite helpful for help showing how dynamic our universe actually is, that these objects are constantly changing. Um, but again, as our data archive grew, we started getting more information that could then be pieced together with types of data from other observatories that could then be used to create three-dimensional maps. And that, for me, was a major aha moment when we were able to make the first 3D map of an exploded star. And what kind of data are you collecting to do this? The Chandra Observatory is a high-energy telescope that looks at the really extreme objects in the universe, things like black holes and exploding stars and other very hot or highly energetic phenomena. So the type of data that we get from that telescope is quite different looking than something you might get from, say, the Hubble Space Telescope. Um, Chandra has been operating for almost 20 years, so the archive of information we have is a very rich, uh, dynamic resource. When most people think of a telescope or an observatory, they think of a dome on top of a mountain. But Chandra is a digital detector on a satellite nowhere near a mountain, right? Yes, exactly. You keep referring to this as the Chandra X-ray Observatory, and that, to me, implies that you're collecting data in the X-ray portion of the spectrum, which really nobody can see, whether or not they have normal vision. Yes, actually, and that is something that I love to talk about, because um, I think astronomy has for millennia been a very visual science that relies upon the human eye. But today, astronomy is truly done in multi-wavelength astronomy. And also today, it's now multi-messenger astronomy as well. So the addition of gravitational waves. And for everything outside a very, very small sliver of optical light in the electromagnetic spectrum, everything else is invisible to us. So most of the images that are able to be seen from space telescopes, such as the Chandrax Observatory, or even uh, the Spitzer Space Telescope, or even the Hubble Space Telescope, a number of those images as well, you cannot actually see them with the human eye at all. Because uh, telescopes such as Hubble, for example, even if they're looking in optical light, they're still magnifying and amplifying it. And also, even a telescope like Hubble looks at other types of light than just the optical light that humans can see. So much of astronomy these days actually is very multi-wavelength in nature. And that to me offers a huge opportunity to think about ways of communicating this data that do not rely just on the sense of sight. 
So how did you first get started creating 3D renditions of astronomical objects? When we created this first 3D map of a supernova remnant, we had only at first a digital uh, model of it on the computer. And I had some friends at the Smithsonian who had recently 3D modeled and 3D printed President Obama's head. And I thought, well, if we can 3D print the president, surely we can 3D print something like a supernova remnant. And so I worked with them to kind of figure out how to do it. And we created an STL file, which is one of the file formats for 3D printing, and figured out how to do it. And the first time I was able to hold a dead star in my hands, albeit, you know, in plastic and scaled way, way down. Um, it was a truly momentous moment. It offers you a very different way of understanding an object that, for me personally, I had been looking at with my eyes for quite a long time. So to be able to instead feel that object was just a whole new world for me. And my team and I, I think, just had an immediate connection of, you know, this data could be very useful to people who are blind or visually impaired because it is offering up a version of the data that is then very knowable in a unique and also scientifically accurate way. Are these models available to other people besides the researchers on your team? Indeed, they are. Um, we do make every object that we produce in a 3D form available on our website. And I can give you those URLs at the end if you want to post them with the story. Um, but everything we do is published online and is freely accessible because we are government funded. So we are taxpayer funded and accessibility as far as um, open access to all audiences is a prime motivation of ours. I take it a lot of libraries and public places may have 3D printers that are available. Is it as simple as someone downloading one of these files from your website, bringing it over to one of these facilities and having an object 3D printed? Yes, exactly. There's been a, a huge movement um, for libraries, particularly um, becoming a sort of community hub in emerging technologies. And there are a lot of libraries that currently have 3D printers and also, of course, makerspaces and schools um, and other types of community centers. So the files that we publish online, um, the STL files, we also publish additional kinds of file formats in case people are working with others, are essentially ready to go. Now, the only catch is that our models, they are scientifically accurate and they are of objects that are a very interesting kind of phenomena. So it's not as simple as just printing out, you know, a very simple ball, for example, on a 3D printer. Um, these models tend to be a little bit more intricate and complex. So we do try to provide information to help, you know, alleviate some of those technical issues people might have. But we also provide additional links to other NASA data sets that are in 3D, such as, for example, there are 3D prints of the moon. Um, there are three objects of um, Mars and different kinds of spacecraft, different kinds of stars being born. There's actually a pretty robust library that NASA has been spending the time to build up and make freely available for everybody who has access to a 3D printer. Oh, that's pretty neat. You have a wide variety of objects that are printable in this way then. Indeed, and they're all based on data. Can you describe one of the more interesting models that you've created this way? 
Sure. I think I have to talk a little bit more about my favorite, um, which is Cassiopeia A. And I feel like, you know, picking a favorite object is like picking a favorite child sometimes. But um, Cassiopeia A is, I think, special because, for one, I love supernova remnants. Um, so a supernova remnant essentially is um, stars, uh, they all evolve, right? And depending on the size or the mass of the star, they will have different kinds of fate. So stars like our sun are kind of on the smaller side and don't really do anything hugely exciting um, when they start to, you know, age. But stars that are much more massive than our sun, at least, you know, say 10 times more massive than our sun, um, they can go out with a bang and such a massive bang, it lets out a huge amount of energy. So when a star essentially ages, um, it loses its fuel, it collapses in on itself, and then it explodes. And when it explodes, it essentially distributes different kinds of material out into the universe. So iron, calcium, silicon, sulfur, that sort of thing. And that material is then essentially, after a long time, is swept up and collapses to create new you know, generations of stuff. So there's a very personal connection, I think, for me, for things like supernova remnants, because, you know, the literal iron in, in my blood and the literal calcium in my bones has come from previous generations of stars that explode. So I'm already, I think, have a bias <laughs> towards things like um, supernova remnants. And Cassiopeia A in particular is only about 11,000 light years away from us. Uh, on Earth. So 11,000 light years is not that far, cosmically speaking. It's still in the Milky Way. Now, some of our listeners may not know that a light year is a measure of distance. How big of a distance is it? A light year is the distance that light travels in a year, so it's about 10 trillion kilometers. How do you create the 3D models? When you're mapping this into three dimensions, in this case, we used the data from Chandra, and then we also used infrared data from the Spitzer Space Telescope, and then also some ground-based optical data um, as well. And what we're able to do is come up with this, um, again, really amazing 3D map with Tracy Delaney, who was the PI in the project. And when you have something like that, um, essentially you have like this spherical sort of shell with these knotty bits and pieces around them. And that's showing the distribution of the star and how it kind of turned itself inside out when exploded. And you can map the various parts of it. So you can map where the iron is and where the silicon is and um, where the argon is, right? Those various uh, chemical elements. And what can you learn from having a 3D model that is different from what you might get in a photograph? What's interesting about a star like Cassiopeia, what we learned by looking at this in three dimensions is that it comes off in essentially two pieces. Um, first is that spherical sort of shell um, that I mentioned already. But then second are these fiducial jets that come out at very sort of strong angles. And that gives astronomers a different way of understanding supernova remnants. And for astronomers that actually have to make models of supernova remnants for a living, and yes, that's a job, it affects how they create those models. So scientifically, there's something to be learned by, you know, exploring data in 3D like this. But also for non-experts, I think it just offers a very interesting way to approach the information. And of course, those tactile representations are also useful for people who can't see so well. Indeed. 
So you were talking about building 3D models of various phenomena, and those are useful for everybody in the general population. But I understand that you've also been involved in some projects where you're specifically displaying astronomical information in ways that would be more accessible to people with visual impairments. Can you talk about some of those projects? Sure. We started back in about 2009, actually, working on um, creating information in a tactile and braille format. And we started out by creating an exhibit that was inspired by the International Year of Astronomy. I had a NASA grant that I was working on to help disseminate different kinds of astronomical results into non-traditional science venues. So, for example, not just the science museum or or a school, but thinking about putting exhibits in cafes and hospitals and airports and um, that type of venue. Part of that research grant and that public outreach grant was actually to create an exhibit for blind and visually impaired participants that was completely tactile and um, braille printed. And we started out by adapting some lessons learned from some NASA uh, braille books that we had been involved in and figuring out how to make an exhibit out of it. And that proved to be a really big success. We put those in a number of spaces throughout the year and made the materials available for other people to be able to produce their own if they had those types of printers. We tried doing it again um, for our next project, which was from Earth to the Solar System. We created some specific panels just for that. And then we had yet another grant that we were working on from NASA called Here, There, and Everywhere that was a way of approaching scientific information and making it a little bit more accessible through setting a context for it. So, for example, you can talk about how supernova remnants, how they are these explosions that are this material that's disseminating throughout the universe, but you can also compare that to a farmer sowing her fields here on Earth and talk about the similarities and the distances. I'm wondering if you've experimented at all or made use of objects that are more flat that might fit in a book. Sure. So we have, um, as I mentioned, kind of done this different way of, you know, taking an image and creating it into a, a flat version with like tactile textures applied to them. So, for example, we might take a supernova remnant and apply one certain texture over the pulsar wind nebula part of it and a different kind of texture around the high energy shock uh, around the outer perimeter, for example. And that we've actually had success with as well. And to be honest, I like the ability to have both. What kinds of reactions have you gotten to these projects? One of the biggest pieces of feedback we had gotten from uh, some of our audience members who are blind and visually impaired with our previous projects was that uh, they really wanted more material that sort of laid the contextual groundwork for the astronomical observations that we had converted. So here, there, and everywhere was a way to take that information and that feedback and kind of mold them into a project. So we had something that talked about that sort of introductory physics, that how to make this relatable on different scales, how to make this knowable using more Earth common 
phenomena and made these image panels that talked about these basic concepts like um, seeding and spirals and uh, electric discharge, that sort of thing. So we have had this sort of dual program going for a while where we have these images and text descriptions translated into a tactile braille form. And now we have these 3D prints that we are testing specifically with audience members who are blind and visually impaired to make them even better. And I've just been very, very pleased with the results. Um, the 3D prints specifically, there was a lot farther, I guess, for us to go to be able to understand how useful they would be. And we worked with the National Federation of the Blind and their Youth Slam program to test our 3D prints and see what made sense for them. And we learned a lot of really valuable lessons from doing that. Like what, for example? For one, something so simple as taking the 3D print of Cassiopeia A, for example, which is this sort of sphere-like um, shape with these you know, jets sticking off of it, and taking that model and cutting it in half. So when you do the 3D print, it's two pieces that you can stick back together with magnets if you want or keep them apart as two pieces. And that simple act of cutting it in half just made it more knowable um, to someone who was relying on their hands to explore it because they could then feel all the details on the inside uh, as well as the outside. And that type of progress was helpful for people who are sighted as well. And where are you headed next with this work? One of the interesting things that we're working on now is taking our 3D models, for example, and understanding how we can apply textures to them. Because when you have one 3D print that is sort of very smooth in some areas and bumpy in other areas, well, that's providing with information on the dimensionality of it. But there's a lot of information that's then missing still. Um, as I mentioned, when a star like Cassiopeia A explodes, it's got this argon, silicon, calcium, iron that are, you know, being distributed out into the universe. And we can map all of those chemical elements. So if we can take our 3D print and apply textures so that the area that is more iron, for example, feels unique to that, so that you can understand the distribution of chemical elements by touch too. That's sort of the goal that we're working on right now, kind of combining those two mechanisms into one object. What other technologies are available for extending sensory impressions of data? We do work with Dr. Wanda Diaz-Merced. She is an astronomer who is blind um, that also uh, does a lot of computer science work as well. And one of the things we're currently working on with her is actually a different kind of data transformation into data sonification and trying to understand how we can take this data of CAFE or some of our other 3D models and sonify them in a way that makes sense, that also has spatial information kept. So we have been developing a virtual reality version of these objects as well. And as soon as we develop the virtual reality version, you know, immediately you're losing some of the accessibility that you gained in the 3D print. So the idea was to figure out how we could combine additional emerging technologies to make that virtual reality model accessible again. And data sonification is kind of the first step in that. Um, so we're trying to figure out how to take that 
3D representation in a virtual space and attach the data sonification layers to it in a way that's spatial so that you understand when you're walking through it um, where the material is in relation to you by sound. And, you know, in my long-term plan, I'd love to add haptic technology as well. Um, so adding it by touch, so through like gloves with vibration. Um, we worked with Dr. Trey Winter not that long ago. He had a great project called the Eclipse Soundscapes that used the iPhone or Android, essentially, vibration technology to create a rumble map of the recent solar eclipse. And it was incredibly successful and just a beautiful project. And that's that's still online, by the way. So if anyone wants that URL, I can hand that to you as well. Um, but that idea of taking kind of simple vibration haptic technology and applying it to the data was very attractive um, as well. So kind of the end result to me for this new virtual reality project is to have something very multimodal with the visual, but also the data sonification and the, the tactile sense of touch through vibration as well. Kim mentioned data sonification of astrophysical phenomena, and if you're interested in that, come back next week. Now for this week's final item, how to learn more about Kim's work creating tactile representations of astronomical objects. If people would like to find out more about your work or even download some of these images to print themselves, where would you send them? I would send them to our website first, um, chandra.si.edu slash tactile will take you both to a uh, direct link to the 3D printable files, but also our audio files, um, a link to the rumble map from the Eclipse Soundscape that I mentioned, and the the Braille tactile posters that I talked about as well. It's all on that one page. And what about the books? Um, the books are mentioned on this page. We don't have a lot in quantity right now, but we do have the tactile posters. Those are available by request. My email is on that webpage as well, so people can contact me directly if they're looking to use a set of those. And what is your email address? It's kkowal at cfa.harvard.edu. Do you or Chandra have a social media presence? We do. Yep. I am pretty active on social media. So on Twitter, I'm at Kimberly Cobble. K-I-M-B-E-R-L-Y-K-O-W-A-L, and um, the same on Instagram. And Chander also has a pretty active presence. Um, and on Twitter, we are Chandra, so C-H-A-N-D-R-A, X-Ray, X-R-A-Y, all lowercase, all one word. And on Instagram, we are NASA Chandra X-Ray. So those are pretty good channels to check out. And as usual, you can go to the show notes associated with this episode on our website at www.eyesonsuccess.net to find all of that contact information and the URLs we mentioned in the show. That's it for show number 1843. Next week, we'll be talking about sonification of astrophysical phenomena. 
We'll talk with Greg Salveson, a postdoc at UCSB, and Matt Russo, a professor at Seneca College, about how they've used sonification to transform astronomical data into audio for use by both sighted and visually impaired individuals. And we will be playing some really cool examples of their work. If you have any questions regarding something you've heard about on the show or you'd like to share an idea for a future show, send an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net or call us at 585-210-8094. You've been listening to Eyes on Success, hosted and produced by Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy and distributed by WXXI Reach Out Radio. Browse the full archive of programs, find instructions for subscribing to the podcasts, and much more at www.eyesonsuccess.net. You can also find us on iTunes and follow us on Facebook at Eyes on Success or Twitter at underscore Eyes on Success. We hope you will join us again next week for more information and updates on products for accessible living. Thanks for listening to Eyes on Success and have a nice day.